1 to 13. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Mm. Thank you, Ellen. Pray with me quickly before I begin. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach me to pray. Let us live in an attitude of prayer. I pray that as I speak, that you would bless these words, that you would open our hearts in your name. Amen. Thank you, Clint, for introducing. So I had felt like after going through Corinthians for some time that for myself and I know for others, um, focusing some time this summer on the spiritual discipline of prayer uh, and specifically hearing the words of Jesus for me uh, felt like it would be a wellspring. It felt like it it would um, provide for me. I needed to hear um, from the words of Jesus And I felt like going through uh, the the Gospel of Luke and John over the next few weeks, looking at how Jesus prays and how he asks for his disciples to pray. Because the the word spiritual discipline, the root of that word is disciple. If we are discipling, we we are disciplining. We are practicing things. And he's giving us a guide and instructions. But it's not a compulsive... Thing, as you would think of a discipline. You think of a discipline as something that, okay, well now I have to do this, it's a little bit like homework. And what's amazing about the way this passage opens is that the disciples come to him and they have a desire. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. And I think that's the very first aspect of prayer for all of us. Are we coming to prayer with a desire? Are we discipling Christ with a desire? to know him. What is prayer for us? Is prayer a a ritual and a compulsive practice or an obligation? Or is prayer a desire of our hearts? And I think what we'll find is the discipline of prayer as, as Christ lays it out in Luke 11 is not only concise and brief, but something that we can do regularly 
and something that we know will bring results. And I think that's the most powerful part of this passage. We are promised when we pray, as the Lord teaches us to pray, to have results. He will bring results. And the other powerful thing to me is that if we look simply just at the words in the Lord's Prayer laid out here, um, which in some versions of the Bible I find interesting is called the Disciples' Prayer. We all learn this prayer as the Lord's Prayer, but actually this is the Disciples' Prayer. This is the prayer the Lord is giving his disciples to pray. And I think for us to think as disciples, we are praying a prayer that does not say, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give me each day my daily bread, but give us each day our daily bread. We are discipling together. This is a prayer coming from us as a church. And I think all of us, especially in the summer, are off doing our own things and have, have busy, busy lives to have a prayer where we are gathering together as us. A prayer that unites us, I think is powerful. I think it's, it's something that I don't regularly think about when I pray. I'm usually praying so much for me, so much for my needs, so much for what I feel is necessary right now, and so little for us. To see that my friends and my neighbors have the same needs. There's such a universality when we talk to each other. We see each other's vulnerabilities. We see how much other people's pains and hurts are like ours. When we pray, we can pray not just for me, but for us. And so I challenge us today to think about how do we approach prayer? Where is the desire? Do we have a desire? So much of what is outlined by Christ in this prayer, we know by heart. We know these words by heart. Anybody that grew up in the church knows this prayer. We know all of the words. We could, most of us do it from memory. Um, probably at the drop of a hat, somebody could just say it, and you could just go. Boom, 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 boom. You'd go right down the Lord's Prayer. We know that prayer. But so much of the time we pray this prayer sort of by rote, going through the words as if reciting something for a test or as if hoping in sort of a talisman or mystical way that saying this prayer will deliver something for us just by the nature of the words coming out of our mouth, and we're not thinking about the intention of our heart when we pray. We're not thinking about where are these words steering my mind? How are these words asking me to be? How am I going to be the person that this prayer is asking me to be? The prayer, doesn't, the prayer has the power to change you only if you come alongside of it. And the power of prayer for us is to step alongside of Christ in this power. It's much like I would love to entertain the idea as a Portlander that I'm a gardener, right? Because I can buy some seed packets at Portland Nursery. I can ask the person to check out. That's the first sign. I don't know what I'm doing. What I should plant. I can put them in some boxes and I can try and grow food, right? But to say I'm a farmer, to, to have the audacity to say I'm a farmer, <laughs> that is, is, is just asking for it. It's like, it's like for me to say I'm a cook, right? Uh, to go follow a recipe, to print something out, to go to Food 52 and look at the recipe and say, and make, and make maybe, maybe a good meal. But then to walk, walk up to a chef and say, oh yeah, oh yeah, I know how to do that. The, it's not in me in the same way. I've practiced I'm discipling in the process of cooking and gardening, and those are good things. 
But to know this, to live it, to be it, to live a life of prayer, is to be the farmer, is to be the cook. It's to rely on it for our sustenance. It's to need it to feed our families. It is a totally different practice than most of us think of when we think of prayer. Prayer for most of us is an isolated project in the day that is either on a checklist that we get done or is literally a forgotten aspect of our spiritual life. It is not something that we do without ceasing. As Christ instructs in Luke, in Luke 18, 7, he says, praying without ceasing is the attitude we have. Does that mean there are literally words coming out of our mouth every moment? Absolutely not. It means that we have an attitude. We have a posture. We have a passion, a desire. So when Christ outlines the disciples' prayer, he's outlining the themes. He's outlining the way, the stance, the structure, how I set my body so that I can be in a right relationship with God. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. God, I worship you. He's saying, your kingdom come. God, set this world right. He's saying, give us our daily bread. Provide for me what I need, Lord, now, so that I do not have to worry about tomorrow. He's asking for confession. Admit that I'm humble. Forgive me. And then admit my humility so much so that I'm willing to let go because I rely so much on you. And then we are praying for protection. Lead us not into temptation. God, not only provide for me, but protect me so that I can live in such a way that I am eating at your table. I was thinking about an apt illustration, and so often the illustrations I come up with are um, pretty second rate to the illustration that Jesus comes up with. Imagine that. Um, and the idea of eating at the dinner table of the Lord shows up throughout the Bible. It's in the Psalms. We feast at the table. And I was thinking about how this is a good study for us as we pray, how this portrays our attitude. When you go to somebody's house for dinner, who's in charge of what's on the menu? Who do you abide by when you walk through that door? I mean, as somebody who's becoming more socially aware, uh, I've learned to look at people's feet when I walk into a house. Do they have their shoes off? Are the values of this house such that I should take my shoes off? We learn and we, we, we abide by the house when we step through that threshold. When we sit at that table, we abide. If they bow their heads to pray, we would pray with them, whether we were religious or not. We abide by the rules of the table. It wouldn't be fair for us to walk into somebody's dinner table, or it would be shameful to bring our Taco Bell and set it down on the table and say, no, I'm good, I'm good, I got my food. It's a slap in the face. You eat the food that is served to you. The disciples' prayer is Christ simply saying, I have a table spread before you. Adopt a posture that says, I'm sitting here to be fed, not I've brought my takeout. <laughs> Don't think you have it all together. And while not Taco Bell, the same story appears in Luke 7, 44 through 47. 
it's, it's a story we know well, but perhaps we haven't thought about this way. This way. In fact, the kids were just doing, calling a picture of this this week, which is what made me think of it. It's when the woman comes at the feet of, of Christ with perfume. And I'll read just that the event happens. Christ is with, the, with a group of Pharisees and religious rabbis who know everything there is to know about religion, everything that you should do, how it's all done right. And just listen to this. After she adores him, Luke 7, 44 through 47, it says, Then he turned towards the woman. He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water to wash my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman has not stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You did not put olive oil on my head. But she has poured this perfume at my feet. So I tell you this, her many sins have been forgiven. She has shown that she understands this by her great acts of love. But whoever has been forgiven only a little, loves only a little. This woman was praying the disciples' prayer. This woman knew that when she came to the table, it was not the table that the Pharisees had set up for Christ. Christ was the table set up for the Pharisees, and the Pharisees couldn't see it. They thought that they knew what they were doing. They thought they had it all put together. Why would they wash the feet of this troublemaker? Why would they adore this man that they needed to teach and put in his place? How do we pray? Do we pray like the Pharisees or the woman who adores him? Because if we do, we are praying in such a way that we are able to feast at the table because our sins have been fully forgiven. But if we withhold that, if our posture is such that we are saying, only so far, you can only come into my life so far, then he says, you have, you have loved only a little and you will be forgiven only a little. I think many of us pray for two different reasons. Some of us come to prayer because we're lonely. We come to prayer with communion. We say, I want to be with God. I want to take time with God. I need God. I need him to be with me. And that's great. Others of us come to prayer out of a sense of justice. We see the world and we say, this world is wrong. I want this world set right. God, make this world right. Think about yourself. Which do you come to God with when you pray? The sense of communion or the sense of justice? We come with one of those so often. But the disciples' prayer has them both. They're intertwined. Both of those prayers are together. They're mutual. They're two sides of the same coin. We both commune with God and he brings his justice. And by communing with him as he brings his justice, we co-labor with him to bring his justice. When it says, your kingdom come, it is saying, God, I am here. Your kingdom is coming in me, and I am here to make your kingdom come in the world. Use me, Lord. You are providing for me so that I can trust in you, so that I can be sent out. We are feasting at the table so that we don't have to worry. We are being forgiven everything like the woman so that we can both be agents of that communion and that justice here on earth. God is our father, he's our provider, and he's also a designer. He designs the world and he designs our heart. 
And so once we have that posture, once we can be in that place with that posture, we're ready actually to begin to pray. The disciples' prayer sets us in a place where we can be ready to begin to approach the world. And I think in many ways, the reason that he's saying this first and then giving this parable is if Christ went straight into ask, seek, and knock without first setting us right, we would ask, seek, and knock for all the wrong things. There is no way if you just set me down without putting me straight first that I would ask for the right stuff. Because when I need something from God, I immediately, I think, I need that. And I can't even understand need from want. Because things are so wrapped up inside, there's so much pressure on me, I can't tell if I'm trying to escape shame, or if I'm just trying to be comfortable, or if I'm trying to escape. And I go to God and I say, God, I'm asking you. But first, am I co-laboring with you? When I'm asking you, am I asking for the kingdom to come? And so he tells the story, and he says, when this friend, think about this first, he says, he's not saying in this story that a man is coming and saying, me and my kids are hungry. He's saying, I'm hosting somebody, and I'm missing what I need to host them. Not only is it embarrassing, it's just not fair for the traveler. I don't have bread for them. Already this, already this man who's coming to his friend has a posture of outwardness. He has a posture of service. And he's coming to his neighbor at the midnight hour, at the 11th hour, at that moment, just out of desperation. And I think what, what Christ is saying is he's saying, it is okay to need. I want you to need. In fact, need is the thing that you need most. Need from me. When you come and ask and seek enough, need from me. Don't need for you. Need from me. And then he says, have the audacity. There's this word impudence in the ESV. He says, I tell you, though, he did not get up and give him anything because of his friend, yet because of his impudence, his brazenness. If, if I'm simply a friend, say, say I have a college buddy that's coming over, and... I'm in the same situation. And I go, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to take care of this friend. If, if, my, if my neighbor is just friendly with me, and he doesn't understand the need, he could, he could jab me, he could spar with me, he could, he could play around. But if he sees that, no, I'm desperate. Like, this is really important to me. God's saying it's not just because it's a friend, it's because you come and you ask. It's not simply because you need it. If you, if you needed it, but then you held it within yourself, as so many of us do, and we say, God, yeah, I do need things, but it's okay. It's okay. I think I, I, think I can take care of it. God's saying, no. No, come to me when you need it, but be willing to let me refine you. Don't come to me and say you need something from me and not allow me to work on you. Prayer is asking God to work on us, to refine us. If you're not approaching prayer with that sense, you will not find anything with those words coming out of your mouth. If you are not asking, knowing that God is going to give you, and when he gives you what you ask for, it is going to change you. How many of us, when we became Christians, 
it was either a merit badge. We did it at an age where everyone else was doing it. So it was kind of the way to fit in for some of us. Others of us had a, had a heart change. And we got baptized. And then we sort of had this period where we go, I don't, what's next? Like, I don't really know what's happened. And then some of us have had the, the privilege, I would say, in our Christian life of actually going through the desert that comes with commission. When we become a Christian, we are commissioned. Our vocation has changed. Our career may be the same thing, but now our vocation is to spread the gospel. We are commissioned when we become a Christian, and it changes us. It changes why we live and what we do. And sometimes that can feel upsetting. It can feel wrong. It can actually hurt. It can feel like, actually, I I don't want to be a Christian. So when you go in to pray, and when you ask, and you seek, and you knock, know that you are asking for something to be given to you. You are seeking something you you will find, and you will knock on doors that will open for you, that will change who you are. That is what you desire when you pray. Not simply to have your comfort, but to be changed into the image of Christ. Do we think about that when we go to pray? Does that feel like a safe space to us to go and pray? Do I want to go and pray and have that happen? Only if I trust in what God is going to do for me will I want that. Only if I have faith in what he is about will I want that. Only if when I say, thy will be done... Am I willing to let go of my will being done? Am I willing to do that? And the only way I can do that is if I see that what God is doing is so much bigger and so much greater and so much more joyful and will result in so much more peace in my life than I have on my own. He lays this out in verse 9. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knows it will be opened. There's an important thing here about our prayer life and a practical thing, I think, for some of us. An element of prayer is very, very practical and very, very active. I think the other case often in our discipline for prayer is that we kneel down in the morning or we sit in our chair and sort of over a cup of coffee and half falling asleep, work our way through some sort of morning devotion or prayer, or perhaps we have an engaging, prayerful experience. The kids wake up or our alarm goes off, we start to get ready for work, and that becomes an isolated incident instead of an informing part of our day that spurs us into action. When you're asking for things in prayer, God is saying, good. Go make that happen. Go start it. Get it started. You're asking for it. You know the first step. Take the next step. Our God is a present God. He works in the moment. And when we pray, he's saying, if you ask and if you seek, it'll be given and it will be and you will find it. You're not going to be finding something if you're not looking for it. And if you haven't asked for it, you're not going to be looking for it. You see how these are all part of a process. It's the ask, seek, and knock are all part of this understanding of prayer together. In some ways, it's a trajectory. We begin by asking, and then we continue by seeking. And in many, many cases, we give up in the seeking, 
if we've even started. And God says, no, seek and then knock at the 11th hour. Knock for it. Keep knocking. Expect that I will deliver it. Count on me. Instead of simply sort of throwing your prayer up to the wind and moving on, you know. I mean, it used to be when a, a plane would land. I, had, I kind of had some anxiety about flying, I realized. But when the plane would sort of start to come down, it could even be like a smooth flight. I would just like say a little prayer as it was landing. And I was like, if I just say this prayer, we're going to be good, we're going to be good, we're going to land. So it was just like in that moment of contact, I was nervous. I was, I was just sending it up there and sending it out there, right? It was a moment of need. It was good. But that was not the beginning of anything for me. It was just like there and gone, you know? That's the mystical quality I think so many of us have with prayer, which is not wrong. That is our need. But we're not taking that and owning that and investigating that and asking and seeking to the point of knocking the door down at the 11th hour to let God open it for us. Let him prove himself to us. Have the expectation. Proverbs 30 lays out um, this act of position, this act of petition, um, as it relates to uh, asking, seeking, and knocking. And I think it gives a great um, heart posture. This is an amazing proverb. It says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The position of prayer is a position of balance. It's a position of knowing. It's saying, God, I come to you so that you can tell me what I need. Tell me what to ask for and seek for. Show me where to knock. And then I will go and do that thing. I will go and do that, Lord, because I desire for your will to be done as I desire for my will to be done. Oh, how transformative that would be for us to live in a way that we are in, in that connection, in that communion, so that communion and justice are working together. That we are agents of justice in our broken world, just as we are asking for it to happen. That we are in communion with the Lord that we love, because we know that ultimately we are in agreement with him, not fighting with him. You know, you can have, uh, you could have a business and you could, it could be a furniture-making business. And there could be two ways to go about making this business work. You, you could pitch two ideas in, in, in the initial startup meeting, right, with your partner. You could say, okay, my, my view is we need to make really high-quality furniture. So I'm going to hire custom craftsmen. We're going to do really high-end stuff. We're going to sell at the right price. We're going to make good furniture for people. And your partner says, no. No, we live in an age we need to be Ikea. we got to go big. We gotta go big, we gotta go quantity over quality. Both of those could work, right? But I think so often we live our prayer life in that partnership, in that meeting, where instead of listening to the truth, we say, no, my way could be just as right as that way. I'm gonna do my way. And then we're fighting. We're constantly fighting God in our life. 
It's a constant battle between two paradigms of what we see as successful. One that might have short-term success and immediate success. The profit margins may seem bigger. Everything may seem like it works better. But are we paying attention to the truth? And are we getting on board with that? So that our business isn't, that business is going to make no profit. Because I'm going to be on the phone hiring craftsmen. He's going to be trying to build factories. And we are going to have a mess of a business. And we're going to be in big trouble. I think so many of us live our prayer life like that. We're not first coming into relationship. Asking for provision. Asking for enough so that we don't need to be so focused on me. Trusting that it's there so that we can be looking outward with God. So we can be designing the kingdom in the knowing and the trusting that he will provide for us in that process. And that brings us to the last part of what Christ talks about, which is partnership. Prayer is a posture. It is petition. It's asking and needing. But it is a partnership. In the last part of this, if you read this passage closely, it's interesting, some of the wording. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? What if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's talking about the Spirit as much as he's talking about good gifts. Christ is going to give results when you pray. He's going to give good gifts. He's not going to give your gifts. He's going to give good gifts for you. And he's going to do that through the Holy Spirit. And I think this is so key for us. When we pray, we are not praying alone. We are praying in partnership. How is this possible? How is it possible that I could be praying with somebody who desires for me to know who is holding my hand as I do that. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. It is literally here to help you. It's not here to help you bring your takeout to the table. It is here to help you at the feast, to get there, to be there, to love it. That's what the Spirit is for. And the Spirit is only here because Christ died for us. That is the only way we have the ability to even pray. Christ, in this moment prior to his death, said the prayer we all ought to pray. He said in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Not my will, but your will be done. As he was facing his death, and then as he died, he brought forth the only way that we could have the Spirit. In fact, he tells his disciples, he says, you will want me to leave because the only way the Spirit will come to you is after I'm gone. It is all part of a grand scheme for this to happen. And it only happens when Christ is in communion with his Father in such a deep way that he gives up his rights. That is the power so that we could have the Spirit. In Romans, Paul talks a little bit about the Spirit. And it's powerful to me to just learn that the Holy Spirit is, I mean, come on, guys. The Holy Spirit is one of the hardest things to grasp in Christianity. I feel like I have as many questions as all of you about the Spirit. And I'm just constantly 
trying to pin this down, and I can't. Paul in Romans 8 talks twice about the Spirit. In verse 9 through 11, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, if you believe in Christ, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit is so central to us once we believe in Christ, we are on life support with the Spirit. We can't go back once we believe in Jesus. I think that's the thing we feel that dawns on us. You can't go back. You can't suddenly decide God doesn't exist once you've believed in him. You're there. You're on life support now. Get in. Commit. My daughter was at the playground the other day. <laughs> and at times, she can be so obedient in such the greatest way, and it's so inspiring. And I just hold on to those moments. There's those like those merry-go-round things that you grab onto and swing from, which are like, by the way, like just total liability, I think. But you get up on there like a mushroom, and then the kids like swing around them, and they're like legs are flying on the edge. She kept trying, as it's going around, she kept trying to jump. And she could, it's not even that she wasn't like able to grab it, she wasn't trying. Like she was so scared of actually getting a hold of that thing and flying around it, that she wasn't even willing to commit. When we pray, are we willing to jump and commit to that so that we're grabbing on that? Is that how we're praying? Because that's putting things on the line to let God deliver. Are we sacrificing in such a way that he's, he's got to come through? Are we so sure of what we're doing and it's so kingdom-minded that we know he's going to come through and he's going to slip in there and he's going to catch us and he's got us? Are we committing on that level? Is that the faith that we have? I think for most of us, that is not the faith that we have. We don't have that kind of trust when we're praying. So we're not praying real prayers. We're not risking. We're not sacrificing. We're not really committing for it. We can commit because we are literally being held together by the Spirit. We're just fooling ourselves to think that we're not. Later in Romans 8, 26 through 27, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts know what, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I mean, it almost seems like we don't have to do anything. <laughs> like the Spirit's got it under control, and yet we are. We're asking to partner. It's the easiest partnership on one level. Because it's all there for us. The hardest part about it is that we can't see it. We can't quite be sure of it. We're, so in, we're, we're people that live in the present. We don't live in the future. We don't know what's out there, so we're scared. We are scared to pray a real prayer. And so as we start this series, I want us to think over the next few weeks, how am I praying? Am I praying in a way that believes that God died for me and will be there for me so that when I step out, he's got me? Am I willing to put myself out there? And then am I willing to go take those first steps? Am I willing to jump towards that handle to grab onto it? Am I willing to let my feet leave the ground first? Am I asking? 
Am I seeking? Am I knocking? And I want us, I want us to, if we haven't, take the disciples' prayer. Take it with you. Work through it. But don't simply work through it by rote. Don't simply do these words and move on. Practice the passion, the posture. Ask God. Go through this prayer and petition Him. And then proceed in partnership with Him. I hope that we can start to do that. I think it will transform our lives. I know that it is beginning to transform mine to live in a way where I am leaping outward in faith. I'm living it. Prayer is not a moment in my day. It is an attitude in my life. That is what Christ is asking us to do. Oh, if we could say, as he did, not my will, but thy will, as we face the hardest things in our life. Let's pray. Lord, we are just amazed that you have brought the Spirit to be in us, to act on our behalf, to be with us. That we are not alone, but we are in a partnership. That we are feasting at your table, and that the food has been provided. We need to simply sit down and eat. In your name, amen. Amen.